0: And welcome to episode 12 of the Brood Sages, Stormbound players with a head for the game. I am Freeloader, and with me as always are my co-hosts, Sabaiku and Arthas. Sabaiku, how's it going tonight? Fantastic. And Arthas, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Well, we are the Brood Sages, and as a reminder, you can always contact us at Brood Sages on Twitter, or for all of you who used to play Street Fighter on your Tiger Electronics handheld, our email address is thebroodsages at gmail.com. All right, guys, so uh, I know we should probably address the uh, elephant in the room. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we announced that we were going to a every-other-week schedule, and that lasted all of one week, and we all kind of missed it to the point that we're back now to a weekly.
1: Yeah, Um, we experienced some uh, withdrawal symptoms.
0: Severe. (laughs) (laughs) So now we're back, and um, as part of that, uh, we... We started getting some feedback, really positive feedback, about the meta report and its impact on some of our listeners. Uh, But there were some questions, um, questions around things like, hey, how do I use this? And like, I understand these archetypes kind of in theory, but how do they play out kind of a thing. So what we're going to do today, this is not as hashed out perhaps as some of our other episodes, but we're going to try to just have a conversation about some of the top decks in the game right now um, as you can find them on the meta report and try to show you the kinds of, uh, well, you know, details and inferences you can make about what's going on from looking at those charts. Okay. So, uh, for starters, uh, we have two different ways of ranking the decks. We can rank them by most played, or we can rank them by what we think are the strongest. Now, Arthas, when I'm looking at the decks that are strongest, and I start to see, for instance, the way they are uh, this month, that the strongest two decks are also two of the most played decks. What inference can I start making about how accurate perhaps the meta is in terms of like, is it stable? Has it been figured out? Or do you think it's still going to change a lot? That kind of thing.
1: Well, it seems that uh, people have figured out, at least for the strongest archetypes. That is the kind of, like, playstyle and deck that they would want to be uh, playing and investing recently. I mean, showing that, like, a lot of people are playing both uh, Winter Control and Ironclad Midrange, while also those two being the most powerful. It's I think it's a pretty nice um, indication that it's pretty accurate in terms of, like, how strong these archetypes are because they're so popular and people are really using and investing their time into it.
0: And Sabaiku, when I look at, say, two decks, like, for example, Ironclad Rush and Swarm Rush, which the meta report suggests are about the same power level, but then I look at frequency and I see they're vastly different, what kind of inference can I start making about that?
2: Well, there's a couple of different ways to tackle this problem. You know, The first one, you can look at the Ironclad Rush and say, People just don't understand how strong it is. And that's why they don't play it. That's definitely one way to look at it. Although looking at our power scores, it's it's pretty solidly middle of tier two. It's not so strong that you're really going to go out of your way to play it unless you already have those cards at a high level. Mm-hmm. And I think that that brings up the second way to look at it, which is just Ironclad Rush is a lot more expensive to play if you don't already have high level linked golems or destructobots or uh, hearth guards maybe you want to run hearth guards as a finisher but that's another epic you have to level up it's an expensive one to invest your resources in and if it's not clearly one of the most powerful decks in the game maybe you don't want to put those kind of that kind of resource allocation toward it whereas swarm rush is one of the less expensive decks to make. There's a lot of commons you can put into this, you know, Doppelbox and Dreadfonds. um, Cut out the Dreadfonds. I don't want Reckless to get mad at me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But a lot of the cards that are going to go into this are commons, are easier to level up. And more importantly, Swarm Rush has been stronger for longer. So if you are in a strap, in if you are an established player, you probably already have these cards at a fairly high level to begin with. and that lets you continue to use the cards that you have played, even though it's not necessarily the strongest deck. it'll still win you games.
0: Yeah, one of the uh, decks that I find most interesting when I'm looking at my at the uh, the, the donut chart here, the frequency score, is uh the fact that shadow fan rush which we believe to be the strongest by a decent margin rush deck in the game is also pretty much tied for winter pack rush as the least played
2: rush deck in the game um i think i I think people just don't understand how good it is if nothing else today (laughs) we want to point out shadow fan rush is the way to go it is nuts but i think it lends a lot of no don't play it with nuts no
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Do not play, play yeah, with Cordia. You could though, you
1: could. Yeah, you could. You could play with <laughs> that's for sure.
0: But, but Cordia is better. But I think it lends a lot of credence to what you're saying, that there's a certain player base that has already invested so much of their resources into leveling up a deck, and that deck happens to be uh, a swarm rush deck because it was so good for so long that they really don't have the ability to change their deck to suit a meta. This is no longer the overpowering Swarm Rush deck that Brejoza admitted Sheepyard had to nerf to, to, you know, well, indirectly nerf by buffing all these controlled cards like Void Surges, right? Uh, It's not the same deck anymore. This is a different meta, and that deck doesn't overpower everything. But it's still being played at such a high level, I think, because, you know, to a certain extent, this game does kind of lock you in if you've put all your resources into a deck. That's the deck you've got.
2: It takes either a lot of time or a lot of money to just be able to pivot decks like that uh art this year probably the best equipped to tell us how much money it takes to pivot.
1: <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Don't remind me of my irresponsible <laughs> spendings. <laughs> but I mean it's also a bit different because for people who have invested on things like the overpowered swarm rush from before, I mean people were doing so in the in a different environment as now. So like back then like back when paladins were uh, still in charge of stormbound and it's changes, you know, like any changes you find are usually takes like several months. And sometimes those changes are like, they don't even matter, right? So it's 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 much easier for people to like, uh think, oh, okay, like Swarm Rush is like so good. And like changes aren't ma- being made that frequently. It's a very safe bet to invest a lot on Swarm Rush right now, because that's what the trend is. But you know, recently, now that sheep are just doing these monthly balance changes and and there're pretty significant changes to it that it people have to like uh recollect like their mindset in terms of like what kind of cards and resources they want to put their time onto and that definitely affected like someone like me i mean i still have 1000 plus fusion stones <laughs> but like, I don't know what to use them on because like, <laughs> oh, like I can easily max my link golems because I know they're really strong right now, but like, man, they could get nerfed anytime soon. Something, you know, something like that, that kind of scares me. And I know some people have that kind of paranoia as well, but it's definitely a different right? kind of like environment of to be investing in because you want to be more well-rounded, right?
2: It's funny that you... You don't want to invest your resources in a card because it's strong because you think it's going to get changed, yeah. <laughs> but it's strong. Like invest, invest your resources in it and hope that it works out. Uh, there's, there's no good answer there, right? Because no matter which way you go, either you don't invest your resources, then you're you're not happy that you're not playing something new, or you do invest your resources and you always constantly fear was that the right bucket? I have a limited amount of resources. Was that the right place to put it? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, okay. Um just a little disclaimer. I am in a little bit of a different position compared to like other people. I mean, I've been diamond 1 for I don't know how long anymore, but I don't have any like sort of problem getting there, and because that's just the, you know, the highest you can really get in the game, like I don't really have an incentive to go even even more. Like even stronger than I already am right now, because it's not like it does too much for me. But there is a little more risk, you know. That's just that's just in my position. I don't want to sound arrogant well, yeah, or but,
0: anything. Well, no, no, no. But, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's not just an arrogance thing, right? Like there's a secondary problem to it. You're playing at such a high level that a modest, let's say, let's say you haven't put a lot of resources in Ironclad. I don't know if that's true or not, but let's just say for an argument's sake that you haven't. Well, then when you decide suddenly you want to try to make Diamond 1 with Ironclad, it's not just, well, I put 100 to level this up to level 3 and 100 gold to put that one to level 3 and this last one. There you go. 300 gold in with some fusion stones and now I've leveled up my... No, 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 no. You're talking about significant fusion stone and gold investments in that deck in order for you to be competitive at diamond 1 with it, right?
1: Yeah. It's it's not like leveling up a card to level 3 and be like, "Okay, that's really that's really good. Now I got to bring it to like 4 or like most of the time 5." Right. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> and it's like there are times when like I don't even need to bring them to 5. Like like people have been uh judging me for not uh, not maxing out my green protos, my saber paws, my hunter's vengeance. Uh, like green proto is probably not going to get changed anytime soon hunter's vengeance was recently changed so that's pretty safe yep. but like i don't need to max them because i'm already good enough where i am and i am still competitive i don't really have an incentive to uh use all of my hoarded up like fusion stones and gold and also because i am also looking forward to like the new cards because they are you know thinking of releasing new cards like frequently. So maybe there is a really good one that I would love to spend like 400 fusion stones on or something like that. (laughs) So I'm waiting for that day.
0: (laughs) Using the exact logic that you were just walking us through. And this is, you know, this was, if you recall, we had a episode a few episodes ago where we had this conversation, but this was the point I was trying to make on it. Right. You, You sit there now and you're like, you look at a card that you already know how good it is. And you're thinking, well, it's pretty strong do I want to put investment into it and then have it nerfed or not my you know it my resources are so scarce you know it's so hard to replenish them without spending you know gobs of money or whatever uh that i'm not sure i want to allocate them they run into that same problem potentially with any new card they put out If it's borderline strong enough that you are worried that maybe it won't see play or won't be good enough, you won't put the investment in. But if it's clearly strong enough that it's worth the investment, you also start to have anxiety because you're like, well, I don't want to put resources into this, level it up, and a month from now have a balance change remove all of its strength
1: yeah I, I remember uh, I, I have a note to add to that. Um, I remember Brazosa mentioned this quite a few times whenever he was uh, releasing cards and or changing cards is that they are more hesitant to release very good cards mm. and I know a lot of people are complaining about the new cards nowadays because they're like very underwhelming. but he said and it just makes a lot of sense. one of the things they really hate to do is release something like so good that's like to the point where it's like too good right and then people invest their resources into it. And then they strip them away really quickly. They're they they they're not comfortable with doing something. We call that the covered.
0: Hearthstone effect.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> we call that a business model. That's right.
0: Blizzard's made money off of that model for years. But I do want
2: to... Uh, yeah, we're wandering a, a we, little we are, bit. Right. It's a good conversation, but it's definitely touching on something we've already talked about. That's okay. And, but it's a... a valid reason i think why you start to notice a discrepancy between frequency and power right you will see decks that are not that strong and a lot of times it might just be because that's what you got and you don't really have much else
0: right and and to to some effect as as players who've come from a game like hearthstone it's actually one of the things that makes uh stormbound so endearing is the fact that the meta never really settles And people aren't all jumping onto the next hottest thing because some of them, you know, they are where they are. They make slight movements in that direction. They maybe take the edge off their rush deck and bring them more into the mid-range kind of a thing. Um, And so the meta is just always, it's always a more fluid thing here because of that. Um, I don't think it ever fully settles out, which I like.
2: And it helps to create some variability when we put a lot of say ironclad mid-range is one of the most popular decks. We put a a lot of different decks into that bucket because they all use the same core set of cards and they all have a similar style of play, but uh, individual card choices can vary across the deck in a lot of other areas. You know, whether you choose to go in a structure direction and play upgrade point in Mia or, if you want to say maybe Upgrade Point isn't worth it, but I do want to have Unstable and Fort Tonic instead, right? There there are different ways to make it to different cards you can pick that help to make the deck yours, even though there's a lot of other decks that are similar to it.
0: Right, and I, actually, why don't we get into that now, right? So so let's let's start by talking about Ironclad Midrange, and, and, and just as a primer to the people who might not recall, what our nomenclature is so rush is you know an aggressive all-out I'm gonna beat your face and then when I'm done doing that I'm gonna beat your face some more Uh, on the far end we get control which is I am going to try to delay and invest value and have a sort of giant swing turn at some point where I convert my value into tempo but I'm you know my deck is built in such a way as to deny your tempo. And in between is mid-range. And mid-range will have some elements that look rushy because they tend to be the beatdown when they play against uh, control decks. But they'll also have some elements that look a little bit more controlling. And the reason for that is because they're not as fast as a rush deck. There are turns where you you just don't have enough cheap cards in your deck like you do with a rush deck to be able to always perfectly manifest. Uh, And so, you know, mid-range needs to kind of play in the middle of the field. It is usually weak to rush and is usually favored against control. So Arthas, walk us through what are the key cards of an ironclad mid-range deck?
1: So uh, something that's very, very prominent in ironclad mid-range is like anything that buffs your units, especially constructs, because it's it seems to be very easy to get that kind of uh, value nowadays. Um, cards like Fortification Tonic, very good card because you have so many structures in the Ironclad faction. Uh, also, something like Upgrade Point and Mia to uh, trigger the Upgrade Point more than usual. Having a bunch of struct a uh, bunch of constructs like uh, Destructobots, Green Prototypes. Link Golems especially, but that's kind of an in- auto-include in like every Ironclad deck. <laughs> every but it is Ironclad. very, very good in mid range because of the buff and the sheer amount of strength that it can have. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's really all you need. <laughs> you know, like the, some the... structures like Unstable, Fortification Tonic with how incredibly overpowered it is right now. it's It's like enough to carry yourself.
0: <laughs> the buff to Fort Tonic is what put Ironclad mid-range at the top of the heap, right? Like before that it was a viable deck, but not the tier 1 top. Yeah. That Fort Tonic buff has been very yeah. very Unst-
2: good. unstable also got a little extra health recently. Yeah. That doesn't hurt anything. <laughs> no, it does not.
1: With uh, Fort Tonic is so strong that even when I prefer to play Ironclad control because mid-range is just blah, gross <laughs> you know, like I, I like to play ironclad control with structures like Siege and the uh, True Shot. Mid-range sure. doesn't necessarily mean true shot because uh true shot is more of a control value-oriented card. But me as a control player with my control type deck, I just slap in Fort Tonic there and I can easily be <laughs> mid-range when I want to. <laughs> it's so stupid. <laughs>
0: But but I, I also agree that, that part of what makes Ironclad so effective with the Fort Tonic is the fact that it's sitting on the cheapest uh, uh, tower in the game, right? Like that they also have the both. Like, sure, sure. But being able to just expend four mana to effectively buff all the units you have on the board is pretty nuts.
1: Yeah, I mean, four mana with simply three units at max level, you get 18 value plus the structure that you put down.
0: It's crazy. Right and so right exactly and so when you talk about well why is it that mid-range decks are are favored into control decks it's like okay so you opened with a very strong couple of turns and then your turn 5 was green proto's f- uh, unstable fort tonic and you just buffed four units Talk to me about what five mana or six mana card a control deck is going to play in response to that that matters at all. They're going to need to buff void Churchers again. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so moving on. Let's talk, Sabaiku, so walk me through Winter Pack Control. What does a Winter Pack Control deck
2: look like? Well, if you asked me a month ago, I would have said it looks like Aaron, Gift of the Wise, and pretty much anything else. Uh, doesn't really matter what the other 10 cards are. But I'm definitely seeing this month a lot more of a Freeze variation that okay. plays. Also, you know, Shyvana and Freeze effects um, does not include Aaron Often still has Gift of the Wise, but doesn't necessarily need to. So there's two definitely two different distinct decks being played. The Aaron Gift of the Wise deck tends to run uh, Ulf as Life Gain, sometimes with Underground Springs, also uh, tends to run some other sort of board clear spell. If your Aaron is level four, you will cast two spells for free. Um, so you'll add in a blade storm or a Needle Blast or sometimes both. Um, the way that I was running this deck early this month was with extra runners. So with Tigor and Siren of the Seas makes it a much more expensive deck. But those are two cards that can be used flexibly for defense or for offense, which is just makes it a lot more a lot more fun to play the freestyle deck we'll talk about in a little bit that plays a very different set of cards but there's one card that is played in both and that's void sergers
0: void sergers is played in a lot of not only control but mid-range decks
2: now oh absolutely it's a great you know we talked about this in the last episode it it is a card that gives you tempo and value and that's a really good fit for a mid-range deck but it's also a very good control tool. It's phenomenal. Yeah. It's, if, Arthas, if you want to talk about the Freeze Winter decks that you've been playing and how strong you think they are compared to the Aaron Gift of the Wise decks.
1: Well, the Aaron Gift of the Wise decks are definitely stronger than the Freeze Zivana decks. But the Freeze Zivana decks are for sure still really competitive. I mean, I still use it in the top level against people who use like uh, Aaron Gift of the Wise or even Ironclad Midrange range. Because, uh, you know, with the new Freeze rework, and the new Icicle Burst, Zivana is really, really nice. It's really fun and it's so rewarding to use when you can, when you have uh, enough experience to use her reliably. I mean, Zivana can clear a unit really well, you know, just from, the, from its uh, destroy effect, right? While also placing a decently sized body on the board. But also, when you play a Freeze deck, things like Frost Hexers, Icicle burst, or if you're feeling more uh, adventurous, you can even be playing Midwinter. Uh, now, yeah, and sometimes I do that because it is really good with Zavanna and and really good with Icicle. Like oh, it's just really nice for freeze. Definitely, Icicle burst and Frost Hexers are the top freeze cards, and mm-hmm. that those two are really the only ones you need. But you know, sometimes you want to be a bit more feisty, a bit more fun. And uh, what's nice with the uh, these freeze cards is that. They have the silence mechanic now. it's so good when i want when I can like silence uh finite loopers or silence azure hatchers or anything like that it's it's so amazing for like the control play style. and that's why these like savannah freeze decks still are really competitive and fit in the winter pack control archetype that we have in the v s meta report
0: so i'll I'll just take a moment to to mention this because um
1: oh wait okay, wait sorry
0: go ahead. Go right ahead. I guess
1: I guess I forget to mention uh the the key dif- the the differences that make like these freeze decks different in terms of like momentum compared to the Aaron Gift of the Wise and um so unlike Aaron Gift of the Wise where um with Gift of the Wise you have this massive like swing turn mana seven because you can play Aaron and Gift of the Wise and all you have to do is survive until then and then it's pretty smooth sailing after that. Um, it's definitely not the case with uh a freeze deck without gifted the wise you can definitely use gifted the wise if you really want to but um freeze decks like this one they tend to be more um well i guess you can choose either being like tempo or value oriented so you can be more mid-range or uh, board clear like uh, a really nice card to pair in the freeze decks that isn't very common in the Aaron gifted the wise decks is um mistwives Mistwives is a the perfect four mana to use whenever you trigger zivana because zivana gives four mana back you get a free misswives not only that zivana is a large body misswives like all the time triggers off zivana it's a really really nice synergy for that
0: yeah it doesn't move either so it's not going to hurt itself what on play
1: you also find a lot more cheaper units in these freeze decks because you don't have such a massive swing turn at mana seven like you can find more gifted recruits links, or west wind or even like hunter's vengeance right because you're, you're gonna need to have those kind of cards to like survive the early game but eventually like um the kind of zivana value you get and the synergies you have like with me i i love to use Ubis, mistwives sometimes even edric edric's another amazing four mana card to pair with the Zivana, uh, those those cards really synergize well. Min- Miss Wives I already mentioned, but with Ubis, like when you place down Zivana, Zivana straight up uh contributes two unit types, and that's dragon and hero, which that's synergizes so very well with Ubis. And Ubus also being a decently large body, it makes it uh you know a bit of a nuisance for the enemy to clear. And when they're busy clearing those, like you're just getting more and more value with your other units. It's it's really, really fun. Definitely a different kind of play style than Aaron Gifted of the Wise. Well,
0: yeah, well, a lot of that, that deck that you're describing is actually more of a mid-range winter, right? Like the, the mana curve is, is more aggressive. There's fewer controlling cards in it. Yeah, It's much more like, like not for nothing, Mist is a
2: tempo play. You can definitely build it with a mid-range bent or mm-hmm. you know, the... The version that i lost to twice today which was more controlly with yep. more freeze effects with midwinter with a moment's peace yeah with ulf for life gain um so you can take it in in different directions but i want to point that out that that is a limitation of our meta report right like we lump both of those freeze control or eren gift of the wise control decks together because we don't really have a good way to separate them and still keep it convenient. Well, for I mean, the people you, you, that can, are contributing. you can still
1: uh, you can still say that. I mean, especially me when I was submitting my uh, my reports when I was you know when I was contributing to the Winter Pack mid range. I am also talking about the freeze the freeze variants because you can use the deck differently. Like the ones I was talking about just now. Yeah, they sound more mid range, um, but. Like another version that I've been playing recently, I have like execution. Very good nowadays, especially in the top level, because of like okay, Pillars okay. of Doom or True Shot. Yeah. I also run well void surgers, but you can use that all the time. I even run things like Crazy Bombers, you know? Like it those are definitely more control cards, less right. mid-range, but like you can still use them. And this type of like freeze deck can fit these two different winter pack archetypes. So it's really nice for that.
2: And there is definitely some blurring of the lines there. It's it it it's tough to put things neatly into buckets for sure. Mm-hmm. But we do our best, and we hope that it helps people out.
0: Yeah, I mean, you you probably could find a, a shadowfen rush and a shadowfen mid range deck that are you know ten of ten of twelve cards identical, right? <laughs> one has butchers and 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 one has bragda kind of a thing, <laughs> yeah. like, like, right? Right. <laughs> It's not It's not too far off sometimes, and that's a little bit of a challenge for us when we try to parse it out. But we, like you said, we we do our best. I, I do want to give a quick shout out to Sheepyard. The new freeze effect is phenomenal. I, I think adding in the silence effect to it has been fantastic for exactly the reason that Arthas uh, talked about two episodes ago, which was there is now an actual second winter faction archetype available to people who want to play it and even better it runs a whole bunch of winter pack cards which is a little unusual for winter pack or has been over (laughs) the last several months um the one sort of I i don't even want to say it's criticism because i i don't want to be critical of it but um the one thing that's a little unfortunate is that it is such a perfect implementation of silence in the same month they drop stoic protectors <laughs>
2: right. yeah definitely undercut the stoic protectors a little bit
0: if, if they had given stoic protectors a, a month to shine and be the silence effect and, and and give people time to play with that and figure it out and see if they liked it before making this impact i think we would have seen a lot of stoic protectors i think ice lance is just a better stoic protectors, you know what I mean? Like it's just ah, it's 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 a little bit of a shame they both happen simultaneously because the freeze stuff is so good.
2: You said Iceland. Oh, yeah. unper- <laughs> wrong one, mana. Wrong one, mana ice <laughs> yeah. Wrong game. My fault. All
0: right. So moving on. Moving on. Uh our, our third deck down is Shadow Fan mid-range. Um does anyone here feel like they know the Shadowfen faction well enough to discuss a shadow Shadowfen deck? Uh, Actually, I'll give this one do to Arthas finish, so that Sobiko can talk Flames about Rush.
1: Know how the Shadowfen faction works. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, here. I, I I will do the primer for these two decks, okay? So guys, you're going to be running Hags and Helios in both of these, okay. recruits and green protos in both of these. Uh You'll run rain in both of these, uh, and then Arthas, talk to me about Shadowfen mid range. What's it running that's different?
1: Mid range, all right. So you know, with decks like mid range that love to uh, put a lot of tempo and like strength on the board, it's really really nice, especially with Shadowfen and Toad spam. Things like uh, Reign of Frogs, as Azure Hatchers. It's really good to have cards like uh, Prime Oracle Bragda to buff up all those one strengths. So, uh, similarly, you can also have Klaxi or uh, Kindred's Grace, especially with the, you know, relatively recent Kindred's Grace buff. It's also really nice for that. Um, you know, at like the 8 mana turn, you can get a Rain of Frogs-Kindred's combo, and that's just a lot of strength that the enemy has to deal with. And that's one of like the defining factors for Shadowfen midrange, and that's the... uh. Buffing up the toads that you spam on the board.
2: So let's talk about the pros and cons there of Bragda and Claxi and Kindred's Grace.
1: Mm, okay, so firstly, Bragda being a legendary, although Klaxi is also a legendary, Klaxi has uh, you know been in the game much longer than Bragda has, has. So it's harder for it's harder to see more common Bragda players because Bragda would like to be a relatively high level something like 4 or 5 to to be worth putting in your deck
2: right ragda bumps everything up to the strength that it has, which means that if she survives a trade and she's only three health left, it's really not right. that impactful to the game. So you really want her to be as high level as possible in order to make it worthwhile. Mm-hmm.
1: And it's not necessarily the case for Claxi because Claxi doesn't need to survive a certain amount of strength; it will always set a strength. That's pretty high. Like even level three Klaxi is pretty scary. Definitely not that scary in Diamond 1, but for the people who are in like platinum, right? Getting to Diamond, level 3 Klaxi is really scary.
0: Oh, it's good. Yeah.
1: Seven strength, that already crosses the uh the cheap card threshold of six strength. So usually seven strength uh units require more than one card to clear. And that gives you a lot of momentum. Now with Kindred's Grace, it's a bit Harder because, you know, they have to be the same unit type toads. But I mean Shadowfin has so many ways of spamming toads. They have a lot of really good toads, like brood sages, heliotroopers, and even chestnuts actually, right? Um Kindred's Grace works really, really well. It works it's very different because at least with Brogda, it has movement. It can actually defend if you're in a desperate situation. Kindred's Grace definitely cannot do that.
2: Yeah, definitely less flexible.
1: Mm-hmm. It's less flexible, but it is the cheapest and most um, accessible card that people can be investing their resources into because it's an epic, rari- uh, epic rarity compared to the yeah. other two legendaries. Yep. It is a really good investment. It's just you know a little less flexible than the other two.
2: Yeah. Now, Claxi also doesn't move, but Klaxi can convert your enemies' units also, yep. which is a huge advantage. It's just it requires a lot more planning or luck or both honestly <laughs> a lot of times it's a both <laughs>
0: klaxi hurts because I, I i have seen with my own eyes in the uh in the uh, official discord a stream where the streamer klaxied a board of of toads and was immediately responded to with a by a higher level klaxi from their <laughs> opponents
1: <laughs> Oh my gosh!
0: Which is just like
2: I've experimented with Claxi and that has happened to me more times than I care to admit. And <laughs> uh, that is why I ended up getting away from the mid range and into a rush. Honestly, because like I just didn't have the levels to compete. The the
0: one thing I will say for people who want to run Bragda is um, you can use your hags the turn before to set up your Bragda turn. And what I mean oh, by yeah. that is throw your hags somewhere where your opponent's going to want to trade into the original body, but you're likely to be able to trade, like you won't lose front and won't be able to to attack the remnant because they'll kill the, uh, the hags, they'll get their little one health unit, and then you're guaranteed sort of maximum Bragda value if you can trade into that one health unit. Uh, and, and, and so the, the best Bragda players I've seen tend to use their hags as the, like the, the premium turn before Bragda play, I'm going to play this and a couple of other units. And then the next turn, I'm going to play Bragda rain. Um, the other thing I will say is if you're going to play Bragda rain, uh, obviously play it in the other order, you would think? No, no, no. (laughs) It's actually better to play it. Bragda rain. Yeah,
1: actually, it actually is.
0: Because rain can sometimes get in the way of your Bragda trade. And so what's often better is to put Bragda not into the unit that you want to trade in, but just know that when you hit end turn, that unit will trade into Bragda. And so you play the Bragda first, leaving it just in front of the unit you want to trade with so that you're guaranteed the optimal placement. Then drop your rain and hit end turn and wait for your opponent to concede. That's the <laughs> way to play Bragda. <laughs> all right. So, Sabaiku, now that we've talked a little bit about uh, Shadow Fan mid range, uh, what's different about Rush?
2: There's a couple different ways that you can build this. How I like to is keeping basically all of the same cards, keeping the Rain, keeping the Azure Hatcher, and instead of Bragda, put in obsidian butchers and yes you have to play the rain before you play the butchers and sometimes that makes it so you don't have a clean path to the base like you were expecting sad face but it's still totally worth it for just the cheapest biggest runner that you can make you could also make it a less expensive deck and instead of butchers just go with the combination of warfront and lime limbs and wild saber paws and just try to push as many runners as frequently as possible into the base throw some first mutineers in there that is that is certainly an option um i just really like the combo
0: D- didn't daniel create a a, a, sh- a shadow david, fan rush deck? It david. david it was david, david. yeah david D- H- that's right
1: Oh, David yeah. G, yeah, uh, yeah, he yeah, yeah. Like a, yeah. He was pioneering Shadowfin Rush with his extremely low
0: master. three mana and less. The entire deck,
2: every card three mana or less. Yeah,
1: oh, and God. it was it was so amazing uh, using First Myninnirus and North Sea Dog as a really nice synergy because right, right, right. you can you can pull that off at six mana as like earliest, which isn't even that uncommon. But seven mana is basically guaranteed if you get both cards in the seven mana turn to pull off the North Sea effect. And then he also plays things like uh, Faithless Prophets, cheap, really strong body, right? That can put a lot of pressure on the enemy base when left unattended. Yep, And there are some really... That
2: that was how I made Diamond the first time was with Faithless Prophets in my deck. Mm -hmm. It's just a very underrated card because... The negative effect, the downside, is is significant. But I mean, you can just you can push so much damage, and it allows you to punch up into something big and clear it out of the way. Oftentimes, it'll leave a one health minion that then turns around and becomes your enemy's one health minion, which means your butchers will go right through it into the base. Yeah,
1: Very and true. there are also a lot of really advanced techniques that you can do with. Faithless prophets and the way that uh, they convert first when they're poisoned before they move forward. So you can even like toxac a unit near the faithless prophets on the enemy base, and that faithless will actually guarantee move into the enemy base at the start of their turn. And that's that's actually really nice sometimes, especially when you pair it with toxac.
2: Such a bizarre interaction. but Yeah, so I know. Fun. It's so
1: cool. It's it's a bit harder now because Toxac does 6 damage now unlike the 5 that it did before at max level.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering if I don't want to level up my Toxac from level <laughs> no, 4. No.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. You should. <laughs> anyway, um, there's also the more reliable advanced technique that I want to talk about. And that is not even using Faithless Prophets as the pocketed unit that's going to hit the enemy base. Like, let's say you had Helio Troopers. Helio Troopers is a pretty nice large body for three mana. And you also have Faceless Prophets. Let's say you wanted to put both of them in your base. A lot of people might want to put uh, Helio Troopers on the middle, middle columns and then uh, Faceless Prophets in the corner, you know, next to the Helio Troopers. And, you know, it's not uncommon for someone to be able to do some sort of damage to the Faceless Prophets, even if the Helio Trooper is in the way and just completely convert your, like, pocket card there. What you could do instead is actually flip the positions around. Helio Troopers in the corner, Faithless Prophets in the middle. And what's so nice about that is that they cannot ignore the Faithless Prophets because of how powerful, how, like, strong it is. They need to put damage into it. And when they do, even if they convert it, right, now they have an enemy unit there that is protecting your Helio Troopers better than any of your friendly units can and that's that i find more success in doing something like that using the faithless prophets as some court some sort of gate or protector rather than a high risk pocket
0: card yeah i totally agree uh the combination that i really like doing like that arthas was i played faithless prophets and azure hatcher and so what i would often do is use my faithless to protect one or two units like you just said and when my opponent put their weakest minion into my Faithless to convert it, just because they're like, well, I don't want to expend more damage than I need to here. I'll just put my recruits into it, right? So now there's like a three health Faithless leftover that's now my opponent's. Well, on the beginning of my next turn, I just put my Azure Hatcher back into it. Always one health. <laughs> so it reconverts it back and then just spams Toad everywhere. <laughs> and I'm base locked. <laughs> It was just a, it, it was the first time I did it. It was such a cool two turn like interaction of guaranteeing you know units on their base. And when when I base lock the second turn, I'm like, oh, this is this is one deserves the other. If you're gonna play with Faithless, play with at least Azure, but maybe even Hysteria. I mean,
1: you don't even need to play Azure after it got converted. You can play it before so that there is a one toad right behind your Faithless. So at the start of your turn, it auto converts. Yeah. That's so good. it's
0: really cool so so hopefully this gives you an idea of the differences between a rush deck and a mid-range deck right so the Sh- Shadowfen rush and mid-range decks both have similar cores to them but their play style is slightly different in that Shadowfen Rush includes several runners like Lime Limbs and more importantly Butchers trying to hit you in the face early, hard, and often, whereas Shadowfen Midrange is looking to try to prioritize those same sort of Toad Spam cards in a way to beat Control by, similar to what Ironclad Midrange does with a Tower and Fort Tonic, Shadowfen Midrange is trying to do with Toad Spam and some giant buff that just takes it all away from an AOE. Um, But aside from that, the two decks are fairly similar because they come from the same faction. All right, guys, with that, we'll call that good enough for today. That gives you an idea of of the top two tier one decks and the the top two out of tier two. Um, And hopefully it gives you some appreciation for um, understanding what the archetypes tend to look like and what their priorities are. Um, How to read the frequency score and understand what's being played more often, what you're likely to encounter, but also how to cross-reference that data with what we think are the strongest decks in the game. It is not surprising to see that Ironclad Midrange being the what we think is the strongest deck in the game is also effectively the most commonly played deck in the game. Sure, Fort Tonic has been buffed and boy, is it a good buff. Um, but it's also not surprising to what Sabaiku was saying to see that there's some sort of what what we'll call friction in movement where there are players out there who can't move from the deck they're currently on to the next hottest, greatest thing because of leveling or uh, resource investment or w- whatever it is. They're sticking with what they know.
2: right? And maybe, maybe it's just preference. Maybe there's a lot of people out there that just really like playing swarm rush it's a fun play style i get it maybe reckless just has
0: maybe reckless just has like 20 different alts and all the people who do our our survey were playing him again and again and again it's totally possible
2: (laughs) the point is really on the frequency score to see what are you going to most likely be matched up against and then to think about what kind of deck can i play that's going to counter this, how can I make sure that I'm going into it where at least I'm favored in most of my matchups as opposed to being unfavored in most of my matchups?
0: Right, and 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 also, you know, to the point that we tried to make last time, make decisions based on the kind of deck that you're intending on playing, right? So if, if you're looking at it saying, I wanna be a mid-range deck, for example, uh, and but I'm worried about all this swarm rush out there, don't put execution in your deck. Put void surgers in your deck, right? You, you need to deal with multiple units, and they're all pretty small and cheap. Give it that extra level of thought about, well, no matter what, I want some tempo on the board, so I'd like something with a body. And I need to deal damage to lots of things, usually, not just one thing. So let's not go with fell flares. Let's go with void surgers. This is true until they nerf Void Surgers, which may happen soon, in which case, never mind, Fell Flares maybe. (laughs) That ends the main portion of this episode, which means it's time for me to remind you to follow us on Twitter at Brood Sages. And you can always email us at thebroodsages at gmail.com. Which brings us to the next thing, guys. We have received some emails and comments this week. Uh, We received feedback from Debnath, self-made. He said, quote, This was one of the most enlightening episodes so far, meaning episode 11. I even made an errand deck that works quite well in mid-gold. Also, the meta report is such a huge, helpful, entertaining piece. Please keep it going. It's me, Shade, said, Great podcast, as always. Sven said, first of all, just want to thank you for taking the time and effort to put together the podcast. I love the content, but he also asks us guys a very important question and I want to put it out there right now because we will be giving you guys this content. You ask for it, you will get it. Maybe not tonight, but soon. Quote, I would love to hear about your beer interests. After all, you are <laughs> the brood sages, so why not let us know what you are drinking and why fellow beer drinkers want to No. Cheers. Sven, we will get that information to you. I am currently trying to pitch to my two podcast mates an idea of an archetype to beer pairing episode. It's not working out so well for me yet, but I am working on it. All right. And lastly, we've received some uh, feedback on Discord. Grateful Toaster said, does anyone know of any videos that show that that SF, uh, the Fan Rush Deck featured on the BS meta report? Which by the way, the fact that it's being referenced as the BS meta report just makes me feel warm inside. I want to see how uh, it's piloted in different situations. Arthas, what do you got?
1: I'm going to go DM Grateful Toaster right after this episode because uh the merc made a video on the Shadowfen cordia rush deck that i made um he actually made one so i would go in uh dm you and also post it on the brute sages channel in case other people are curious but there is a video that the merc a very top player has played the deck in. so that'd be very nice to
0: watch perfect see ask for content you will receive it sven Hold on, the beer's content is coming, okay? And lastly, Pixels said, I just want to thank this podcast. The advice and tactics mentioned here made a non-rush player with only 14 base health and level three slash four cards like me reach Diamond. And Pixels, I think you give us too much credit. I do want to say congratulations. uh, Making Diamond for the first time, it wasn't so long ago that I did that myself. And I've got to say it was one of the most rewarding things in this game, finally getting there. So congrats. I'm happy for you. All right, guys. Uh, And with that, that's going to do it for this episode. For Arthas, Subaiku and I, I am Freeloader. We are the Brood Sages reminding you to stay hydrated.